2: perfect home sweet
3: home Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio
1: As the 1970s drew to a close a record called Rapper's Delight arrived on the scene and in the process introduced the world to a new kind of music hip hop But the song that changed modern music is steeped in controversy. The Sugar Hill Gang, the group behind the hit, didn't pioneer the genre that they, for a time, became the face of. And their song's success is tainted by accusations of organized crime, plagiarism, and betrayal. On today's episode, the incredible inside story behind the song that launched hip-hop on its course toward world domination. I'm Steve Greenberg, and this is speed of sound so it's October 1979 I was driving in my car in Washington DC going to meet somebody for dinner I'm listening to the radio and I think I'm hearing the song good Times by chic which was very big at the time but all of a sudden this guy starts talking over the record? I said, I hear now i'm fascinated by this and the song just keeps going just like that this guy just keeps talking and the song is nearly 15 minutes long finally i get to my destination but i don't get out of my car i just sit there listening to this record let the person i'm supposed to meet wait because I'm afraid that I might never hear this record again, and I desperately want to know what it is. Is this even a real record, or is it somebody at the radio station just talking over good times? When it finally ends, the radio DJ says, this is a new record called Rapper's Delight, and it's by a group called the Sugarhill Gang. I get out of my car and I go to dinner. It turns out I needn't have worried about never hearing that song again, because All over the Northeast, people were having a similar experience upon hearing this record on the radio. Stations were flooded with phone calls asking what the record was, with people requesting to hear it again and again. Stations were playing this 15-minute record two, three times in a row. They were promising they'd play it again every hour just to get the phones to stop ringing. Rapper's Delight was an instant smash. But... As much as radio audiences were just as exhilarated as I was to hear this fresh new sound, there was grumbling and even bitterness up in the Bronx. Because as it happened, this fresh new sound wasn't quite so new. During the previous few years, a very vibrant scene had been flourishing in the Bronx. But the music they made up in the Bronx had never been released on a record, it was all performed live at parties held at people's houses or in community centers or in local parks where the mobile DJs powered their sound systems by plugging into lampposts. And those South Bronx parties, where modern DJing and rapping were invented, were called hip-hops. Curtis Brown, also known as Grandmaster Caz, was one of the early innovators on the South Bronx music scene. He's also one of the rap pioneers featured in Macklemore's 2016 hit, Downtown. Here's how he recalls the early days.
4: When we talk about things, we tend to talk
1: about the big, you know, the big things. But I mean,
4: hip hop started for me in, in a building, like in, in an apartment house with one little turntable and a stack of 45s. Okay. And we were doing house parties, the traditional house parties, like from the 50s, where they pay at the door 25 cents or whatever, come in. It was that kind of situation. Okay. Except. The music that we gravitated to is the, the formative music of hip hop. Those old funk soul and break beats, even some disco, but just the part that we danced to. And that's that's kind of what formed the foundation of the music of hip hop, those house parties. Basically any party where we could come together, dance the way we want to, dress the way we want to, interact with each other the way we want to, became the um foundation for hip hop.
1: Remember Kaz's name. He's going to play a big and controversial role in the success of Rapper's Delight. The South Bronx scene even had its own dance style called breakdancing and its own visual signature in the form of graffiti. The hip-hop scene in the Bronx had its own stars, and they were real innovators who had pioneered the music, introduced a slew of important innovations, and none of those people were the Sugarhill Gang. No, that scene was dominated by people like DJ Cool Herc, a Jamaican-born DJ who had the loudest mobile sound system in the Bronx and who achieved local fame by experimenting with the use of two copies of the same record on two turntables to extend the break or instrumental section, resulting in what was known as a breakbeat. Herc had this extraordinary ability to identify particularly interesting breaks, and the records he spotlighted are among the rhythmic cornerstones of hip-hop to this day. For instance, the great break in Jimmy Castor's It's Just Begun. And then there was grand wizard Theodore, who was the first to introduce what became known as scratching, manipulating records on the turntable to create a brand new percussive sound.
5: (laughs) Ready, I'm firing.
1: And there was Grandmaster Flash, who perfected the art of scratching and who also perfected cutting between sections of the same record on two turntables to keep the beat going for minutes at a time without losing the rhythm. Which was a big improvement over DJ Cool Herc's style because Herc wasn't concerned in the least with keeping a smooth beat going as he switched from record to record. While Herc was mainly influenced by Jamaican DJs, Flash was heavily influenced by DJs from the New York disco scene, who, by 1974, were executing really seamless blends between records. Flash's technique was helped a lot by the introduction of 12-inch singles in 1975, which had wider grooves, making it a lot easier to perfect the art of scratching and cutting back and forth between two turntables. And then there were Bronx MCs like DJ Hollywood, The Furious Five were the Cold Crush Brothers, people who had mastered the art of rapping along with those breakbeats to send a party crowd into a frenzy. Except back then they didn't call it rapping, they called it emceeing. And all of those people, when they heard Rapper's Delight on the radio, they were annoyed. None of them even knew who the Sugar Hill Gang were. And how did they make a record and get it on the radio? So who were these guys who had beaten everybody else to the punch? Well, at the core of the Sugar Hill Gang was Henry Lee Jackson, known professionally as Big Bang Hank. He grew up in the Bronx, where he worked the doors at a Bronx hip hop nightclub called The Sparkle. There, he met an MC named Grandmaster Kaz, the same Grandmaster Kaz we heard from before, and he became the manager of Kaz's first group, The Mighty Force MCs. Here's Grandmaster Kaz again.
4: Well, actually, I met Hank, at, uh, he was a doorman at a club called The Sparkle in the Bronx, Hank was always at the door. So we gained a rapport. We started chilling, being cool. He lived in the Bronx and and we just got cool. And um, Grandmaster Flash had uh, management, Black Door Productions. The Funky Four had a management. So I'm thinking for me to, to advance in this thing, I'm gonna need a manager situation that'll help book me shows and stuff like that so i approached hank and i was like yo Hank, you know you into hip-hop already being here at the club and he agreed to help manage the group we were uh, a known you know act we were on our way up we were rising but we lacked a good sound system so hank took got a loan from his parents two thousand bucks you know refortified our sound system and uh we started doing parties and jams
1: now the Mighty Force MCs weren't making much money doing hip-hop parties, and Hank needed to start repaying that loan.
4: So Hank got a job in a pizza shop in New Jersey. Someone that he knew, a friend of the family or whatever, he got a job in a pizza shop in New Jersey. Crispy Crust Pizza. We used to take a little boombox to work with him. Of course, me being a DJ and one of the first to you know, record and make some of the first mixtapes, I used to give Hank some of these tapes. You know, just to rock with, take the work, whatever. And Hank would be in a pizza shop with the little boombox playing all the hip hop beats and all, you know, the live hip hop shows. So people coming in and out of the pizza shop automatically assume, hey, this guy must be one of them hip hop dudes. He's he, a rapper.
1: Hank's path would soon cross with two other guys from New Jersey who would eventually round out the Sugar Hill gang Michael Wright, known as Wonder Mike, and Guy O'Brien who also goes by the unforgettable name of the man they call the Master G. I'll let them pick up the story from here. Here's Master G.
5: I come from a musical background. My dad was kind of like a frustrated musician. We had a studio in our basement in Teaneck, New Jersey. So I was always around music and I played drums and uh, farted around with a few different uh, instruments. So from my childhood, I was always into music, listening to a lot of jazz and that kind of thing. And then, of course, the funk scene, because it was all 70s. And um, so we had a little band and then, you know, I got introduced to DJing from an upperclassman. uh, And uh, I thought it'd be a cool idea if I did a little DJ thing myself, because then that started becoming popular around our area in uh, the Hackensack, Teaneck and Englewood area. So I was DJing and uh, I was going to school, trying to, you know, figure out what my next move was going to be. 11th grade, transitioning into the 12th grade. I was just a kid, man, uh, you know, a kid in the suburbs of, um, you know, northern New Jersey trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life and, you know, trying to make two dollars and DJing and just doing my thing. That's what I was doing at that time.
1: Wonder Mike was also building a name and following as a local DJ at the time, introducing northern New Jersey audiences to an entirely new sound. Master G picks up the story.
5: Mike and I were rivals. So we had our own little hip hop scene. We were rapping. We are legitimate rappers. Mike and I are legitimate rappers. We wrote our own raps. I was spinning records, cutting them out. I did all of that. But because it was in New Jersey in the Englewood, Hackensack, and Teaneck area, it was our little area. So we had our own little hip-hop scene. And New York literally is like a 15-minute ride from where we were at. So we got it, but we got it kind of like secondhand.
1: At the same time, a New Jersey music legend was also discovering the sound of hip-hop. By the late 1970s, Sylvia Robinson was already one of the most successful female executives in the music business. Along with her husband, Joe Robinson, she owned All Platinum Records, a major R&B indie label headquartered in Englewood. She'd also experienced major success as an artist, songwriter, and producer. As little Sylvia, she recorded for Savoy Records in the early 50s. And then in 1956, she had a major hit with Love Is Strange as one half of the duo Mickey and Sylvia, along with jazz guitarist Mickey Baker. Love Is Strange actually had a spoken word interlude in the middle, perhaps a precursor of Things to Come.
3: Sylvia. Yes, Mickey.
5: How do you call your lover boy?
3: Come here, lover boy. And if he doesn't answer,
0: oh, lover boy.
3: And if it still doesn't answer. I
1: simply say, play, play. Oh. In 1968, Sylvia and Joe Robinson launched their first label, Stang Records. And Sylvia wrote and produced the label's biggest hit, Love on a Two-Way Street by The Moments. <laughs> that record went on to be memorably sampled by Jay-Z Empire State of Mind. Sylvia even had a massive hit as a solo artist in 1973 with a hypersexual pillow talk. But Sylvia Robinson was no mere sex kitten. She was a tough businesswoman. She and her husband, Joe, navigated the rough-and-tumble world of record pressing, distribution, and promotion with the backing of their silent partner at the label, the notorious Morris Levy. Morris Levy was a flamboyant music executive who, at the height of his influence, had an interest in about 90 music companies, including labels, publishing companies, pressing plants, and a chain of record stores. He also had ties to the Genovese crime family, And toward the end of his life, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison on multiple counts of extortion. But with Morris Levy on their side, the Robinses knew that if they sold records, they'd get paid. Now, in the summer of 1979, Sylvia's son, Joe Jr., threw his mom a surprise party at the Harlem World Disco in New York City. And at that party was a DJ named Lovebug Starsky, who was spinning records and rapping to the beat.
4: me, honey, I
0: made you believe I had a place.
1: Called Fever. Now it's Sylvia done. was really impressed, and she got the idea of "making a rap record with Lovebug Starsky. But Lovebug turned her down, saying he was making too much money performing live to take time out of his schedule to make a record." Besides, he didn't see any potential in making a record of himself rapping over somebody else's record. So, Sylvia and her son approached a couple of other big rappers on the scene, but they also said no to making a record. Finally, Sylvia decided she'd make a record with someone still undiscovered. She turned to her son, Joe, to connect her with some local talent. Here's Wonder Mike again.
6: They were on Palisade Avenue around 10 o'clock at night, and it was Miss Robinson and her son, Joey, and his friend, Warren, in the car. Warren said, I knew a guy in a pizza shop across the street. He pulled a U-turn, pulled in front of the pizza shop, asked Hank to come out. Hank had flat." (laughs) Hank had an apron on with flour, sauce, meat, and, oh, and they jumped in this car and started rhyming over this track. And uh, they said, yeah, that sounds good. Now, Master G, a guy, happened to be
5: on the street. I was walking down Palisade Avenue with a friend of mine, and there was a 98 pulled up in front of that pizza parlor. My friend actually noticed that Sylvia, God rest her soul, and Joey Robinson, God rest his soul, they were sitting in the front seat. My friend knew them. He stopped to speak to them. Joey says, my mom is looking for people who can rap. Well, Mark knew that I could rap. And Guy's friend says,
6: well, he's good, but my man, here, Master G, is vicious. And Guy got in the car and they started rhyming. Master G picks up the action. From the pizza
5: parlor, we all went to Sylvia's Mansion up in Anglewood Cliffs, and Hank came with us. So we're in a library because, again, she said that she was looking for one person. So we thought, I thought I was in competition with Hank. And Mike came along because he was a part of the, the DJ that suggested to do uh, the Good Times track. So he's he's in the library, I'm in the library, Hank's in the library, we're all sitting there, and I'm going back and forth with Hank. Now, Hank is rapping, Now, he's saying the same rap over and over and over again. And I'm saying to myself, why is he using the same rap? You know, and I'm in in my head. I'm coming up with rhymes and freestyling and thinking about things to say. And he keeps saying the same rhyme over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm like, why is he using the
6: same lyrics? Hank and Guy are going back and forth from like 11 o'clock at night to 2 a.m. And she said, wow. I don't know who to choose. Everybody come back another day and we'll try this again. I said, Ms. Rob, I can rap too. And uh, she said, okay, let me hear what you got. And I started incorporating everything that was in that room because we're in a library. Her dog, the books, what we were doing, what we were trying to do. The record was going to be big. And the first thing that came out was the hip, pop, the, hip, the, hip, the hip. The hip, the hip, the hip. And she said, wow, okay, how, hey, you come with Hotel Motel. And then he said a few lines, Guy said a few lines. And she said, I can't decide between y'all. I'll tell you what, I'm going to make you a group. Three's my favorite number. I'll make you guys a group. That was Friday night. She said, come down to the studio Monday and we'll make a record.
1: But while Mike and Guy headed home to work on honing their rhymes, Hank wasn't exactly up front with the source of his material. Here's Grandmaster Kaz. Instead of him telling them, no, no, I don't rap, but I manage a rapper.
4: I manage Casanova Fly. He just got into the back of the car, whatever. They were playing a beat. He recited the rhymes that were on the tapes, on the boombox. Those were my rhymes. He recited the rhymes he was most familiar with. Those are my rhymes. The rhymes that he hears me say all the time. So that's actually how the whole thing came about. And when he came to me, he was like, yo, these people want me to make a record. I mean, imagine in 1979, somebody saying that they're going to make a rap record. And you've been doing this for six years already. It was ridiculous. It was like, oh, you're going to make a record? All right, cool. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because I didn't believe in it, and I never understood the dynamic. I didn't know how serious it was, and I didn't know how far it would eventually go.
1: Within a couple of days, Hank... Wonder Mike and Master G all found themselves in a recording studio in Englewood, making a record under the direction of Sylvia Robinson. Master G was just 17 years old, Wonder Mike was 22, and Hank, he was the eldest member at all of 23. Prior to bringing the Sugar Hill Gang into the studio to record, Sylvia had her house musicians record the backing track of Sheik's hit disco record Good Times, the biggest song of that summer. This was in the days before sampling, and so she just got the band to recreate the chic track as precisely as possible. All the rappers in the Bronx were rapping over existing records at their shows, so Sylvia wanted to recreate that authentic hip hop experience on record. Once in the studio, the Sugar Hill Gang recorded the whole 15 minute record in one take. Well, almost. Here's Wonder Mike.
6: They were in there laying the music down. It only took eight hours, which seemed like forever for us so me and Hank went to the movies and when we came back they were wrapping up the music and they set up three mics no boots three mics next to each other about six feet apart and uh it was decided that I would go first because the type of voice I had and uh I wrote the intro I don't know because I didn't want to just jump into it because people didn't know what this music was so I got the idea from the show Outer Limits
2: there is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. What you hear
6: is not a test. What are you doing? I'm rapping to the beat. Me, the groove, and my friends, we're going to try to move your feet. Who is this? I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say alone. And I included every race I could fit lyrically into the rhyme to the black, to the white, the red, and the brown. I don't know where purple came from. I bet I never liked that word in there. And and yellow, so. And then I passed it off to Hank, and uh, it's a 15-minute record. We laid down the vocals in 17 minutes. We only stopped one time after my first rhyme when I said, come on, Hank, sing that song. And he was just staring at me. I was like, yo, what are you doing? It's like a throwdown. You know, you
1: pass the mic. That pause was because Big Bang Hank was used to managing rappers, not rapping. But at the time, neither Wonder Mike nor Master G knew that, or had any idea that Hank wasn't rapping his own material.
6: We didn't know that the rhymes that he was saying, uh, Grandmaster Kaz wrote.
5: (laughs) Here's Master G. Then we get to the studio. Now he's in the studio, he's saying the same raps that he said at the library that night. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Maybe you know he maybe he doesn't have a lot of stuff. The big, big, big thing was you never let us. You're not supposed to bite. You're not supposed to bite another MC's rhyme. That was a cardinal sin. We didn't know that he was biting.
1: Wonder Mike does acknowledge, however, that Big Bang Hank was not without talent.
6: Now, Hank may not have been a writer, but he had a great voice. Uh, one of the best voices in hip hop. Had a lot of power, a lot of character. It was somewhat high-pitched, which was kind of misleading because it was
1: so powerful. Of course, when the record came out, Grandmaster Kaz was blindsided.
4: Every rhyme that he said on Rapper's Delight was mine. Now, Hank said some phrases that weren't mine, okay? Hotel, motel, what you gonna do today? Gonna get a fly girl, gonna get so spank, drive off in a deaf OJ. That was like Keith Cowboy from the Furious Five. That was one of those crowd participation rhymes, one of them, you know, rock with the crowd Rhyme he used to say. Um, Later on, at some point he said, I'm pimp the dip, the ladies pimp, the women fight for my delight. That's a rhyme that he got from Raheem, from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, who got it from, it was a black exploitation movie. I don't remember the exact movie, but one of the guys was, you know, like this slick talking character, like in Dolomite fashion. And he had some rhyme that went, I'm empty, dimp, the women's pimp, the women fight for my And he had this whole long narrative that Raheem took part of that and made his own. And then Hank took that and made that part of his Every verse he said from I'm the C-A-S and the O-V-A and the rest, he just spelled out my name. So Hank was so much not an MC; he didn't even know enough. Don't say the guy name. Change the letters around so it spells your name. And if you just got to change the next thing so it rhymes with Hank or K, do it. You know what I mean? And then uh, I'm the grandmaster with the three And That's totally obvious. I'm the grandmaster with three MCs, okay? And the most ironic of all of the r- uh, raps that he said was the one about, you know, from the time I was only six years old, i never forget what I was told it was the best advice I ever had, came from a wise and dear old dad. And he went into this narrative about how his dad sat down and told him these lessons. And it goes, all right, from the time I was only six years old. And then when he sums it up, he goes, so from 66 to this very day, You would have to have been six years old in 1960. That's me. I was six years old. And then it said, never let an MC steal your rhyme. Irony on irony.
1: And that little story in Rapper's Delight about Superman? That was also one of Kaz's rhymes from a couple of years earlier. In fact, that was one of the most famous rhymes in all of Bronx hip-hop culture up to that point.
4: Once the recording
1: of Rapper's Delight was completed, Sylvia quickly got it ready to bring it to market. She decided to release it on a new imprint. Sugar Hill Records, named after a neighborhood in Harlem that historically was home to artists and musicians. And she named her new group the Sugar Hill Gang. Coming up next, Rapper's Delight storms the charts and changes the music game forever.
2: If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
1: Whatever the true origin of the rhymes, there was no denying that Rapper's Delight was one great record. For the uninitiated listening on the radio, Rapper's Delight sounded like the Sugar Hill Gang were performing the vocal equivalent of graffiti over Chic's Good Times. It was the glossy world of disco meeting its harsher street cousin. Upon its release in September of 1979, the 12-inch single of Rapper's Delight became an immediate smash, selling 75,000 copies a day and peaking at number four on the R&B chart, number 36 on the Hot 100, too. It would have been a much bigger hit on the Hot 100, but a lot of pop stations shied away from playing it because late 1979 was the beginning of a major anti-disco backlash at radio. And a bunch of guys rapping over Good Times, one of the biggest disco hits of the year, was seen as potentially alienating for audiences who wanted to move on from disco. But even the relative lack of pop radio exposure didn't keep Rapper's Delight from becoming the biggest-selling 12-inch single of all time and immediately changing the lives of the guys in the group, especially then-17-year-old Master G.
5: Let me tell you how mind-blowing it was, okay? I went from trying to figure out how to get a date how to try to, you know, manage what I was going to do, how to get a car. I went from that to literally a movie. Like from one one day I'm trying to figure out how to get a date. The next day I'm running in my own neighborhood away from girls that I, you know, had the biggest crushes on. You know, it was crazy. I, I couldn't I couldn't leave an arena. We had a decoy that used to run out of the backstage door. And all the girls would run after them, and then they would shuttle me into the car to get out of there. That's what it was like. I'd get pulled off the stage. I got my clothes turned off, my hair pulled. It was crazy. Here's Wonder Mike.
6: 1964, I saw a Hard Day's Night in a movie theater, looking at these guys, the Fab Four, singing these catchy songs, and girls losing their minds. And here I am with two other guys, and the exact same thing is happening. They got so excited, they got so strong, they were, that they tackled Hank. <laughs> Hank is six two, three oh five, 305. And they tackled him like, like they were Ronnie Lott, a bunch of Ronnie Lott.
1: <laughs> now, we've repeated before on Speed of Sound the old music biz saying, where there's a hit, there's a writ. And, of course, the inevitable lawsuit was filed by Sheik, who hadn't received any writing credit or royalties on the track. An out-of-court settlement gave Sheik's Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards co-writing credit. The Mighty Force MCs were not so lucky, on the other hand. Lacking the knowledge of copyright law and the legal muscle that Sheik's team possessed, Grandmaster Kaz never saw a dime. Of course, he didn't press his claim too hard, aware as he was of Sugar Hill's affiliation with the mob. But still, the song was a game changer, single-handedly jump-starting the hip-hop record business. And literally, the first line of the song is, as if announcing to everybody the start of a new era. But as I mentioned earlier, there were a lot of people rapping live over breakbeats before the Sugarhill Gang. In fact, the Sugarhill Gang weren't even the first people to make a rap record. Rapper's Delight was actually beaten to the marketplace by a few months by this record. King Tim the Third, J-J-D. personality Jock by the veteran J-J-D. funk J-J-J-D. band Fatback Band, started its life as the B-side of a song called You're My Candy Sweet. It was just an afterthought, something to fill the other side of the seven-inch single with. The part of King Tim was voiced by vocalist Tim Washington, a friend of the band who was not a professional MC. The record did okay, getting up to number 26 on the R&B chart, but the backing track was standard fatback band, and Tim just rapped on the verses while the band sang the chorus. Therefore, King Tim III didn't present as revolutionary, the way Rapper's Delight did. Now, while King Tim III was the first record featuring rapping in a purely hip-hop context, there was a long tradition in American black music of vocalists performing in a style that can now be seen as the precursor of rapping. For instance, in 1941, a group called the Jubilaires released a popular record called "Preacher and the Bear."
2: Yes, just come on, brothers, if you want to hear a story about that preacher and the bear. Gather round, boys, I don't want you to miss none of this here story, cause it goes like this: a preacher. And there was a major
1: tradition of R&B radio DJs
2: speaking in rhythm
1: on the air, like station WOV New York's Jaco Henderson. <laughs> Again, the the and
5: down in Memphis,
1: <laughs> Rufus Thomas was doing his own rapping on W.D.I.A. Aha,
4: she cried as she raised the wooden leg and then she sighed, pink
1: pussycat wine, the New York State wine, I repeat, pink pussycat wine. In 1968, a veteran African-American comedian named Pigmeat Markham had a top 10 hit with a record called Here Comes the Judge with sections that sound fairly similar to the rap sounds that came out of the Bronx in the 1970s.
0: He, yeah, he the of he's just about
4: ready to do that thing. I don't want no jizz, I don't want no lies. But all, I
5: don't want no this And a
1: and few records appeared on. in the early he's 70s he's that would have a major influence on the early Bronx rappers, like radio talk show host Gary Bird's poem set to music, Every Brother Ain't a Brother, which became very well known to listeners of his program on New York Soul Station, WWRL. <laughs> Time for us to face the truth and level with each other.
0: It's time for us to face the fact that every brother ain't
1: a brother. There are some In say, 1973, Lightning rod. rod from the politically charged poetry collective The Last Poets recorded Hustler's Convention. An album that was performed entirely as a spoken word piece over funky grooves, and which over the years has gone down as a major influence on hip hop culture.
0: Twice. a few does roll, but their cold. Soon y'all blew that
5: dough. The only dude that seemed ready was finger and Teddy, and now was his turn to
2: do. Starting in
1: 1974, the scene really began to come together in the South Bronx, an area of New York City that was particularly afflicted with poverty. And urban blight. Shells of burned out buildings were an increasingly common sight as landlords actually set fire to their own property to claim insurance money. So a street party featuring a DJ with two turntables and a microphone was a very affordable form of entertainment for South Bronx teenagers, with rival gang members sometimes showing up and turning their energy to rap battles instead of street battles. There was a lot of competition at the core of early hip hop, at every level. Rap battles, Competition between breakdancers, graffiti artists trying to outdo each other. And with the exception of the graffiti, which could be seen on every subway car in the city, it was all out of sight from the rest of New York. Eventually, nightclubs opened that catered to the South Bronx hip-hop scene, notably Disco Fever, where the cover charge was as low as a dollar and where DJs like Grandmaster Flash and African Bombada packed the house every night. So, when Rapper's Delight hit in 1979, There was no shortage of DJs and MCs in the South Bronx anxious to make records of their own to get in on the action. And there was no shortage of veteran indie record executives anxious to put those records out. One of the first of those executives to get into hip-hop was Bobby Robinson, no relation to Sylvia or Joe Robinson, owner of the legendary Harlem record shop Bobby Robinson's Records on 125th Street. He'd been producing hits since the 1950s, big records like Kansas City by Wilbert Harrison. Kansas City, here I come. i to Kansas City. Kansas City, here I come. He was turned on to rap by his nephew, Spoonie G, who had already, in those very first weeks after the arrival of Rapper's Delight, made a record on a small label called Spoonin' Rap. Soon, Spoonie G would be recording for his uncle's label, Enjoy Records, along with The Treacherous Three, featuring the great speed rapper, Cool Moe
0: D. Spoonie they
1: G suggested to his uncle little, that he little, sign up not the not very little, top long group long long on the Bronx scene, Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five. Now, as soon as they'd heard Rapper's Delight in October, the members of the Furious Five, Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, Kid Creole, Raheem, Mr. Ness, and Keith Cowboy, recorded a quickie single called We Rap More Mellow on a tiny label called Brass Records under the name... The younger generation.
0: All the
1: ladies drink. Cowboy, i make you jump for joy. And creole, the
3: creole,
1: let's but the by role. November, they signed to Bobby Robinson's Enjoy label and recorded Super Rappin', a record which contained a lot of the same rhymes that could be found on We Rap More Mellow but Super rap and also contained a few verses that would later find their way into hip-hop history. But more on that later. Enjoy Records also quickly released a record by The Funky Four plus one more. A collective notable for including among its members one of the very first female MCs, Shah Rock. The Funky Four Plus One More record was almost immediately joined in the marketplace by an all female rap record. This one by the duo of Tanya and Paulette Winley, who were the daughters of Paul Winley, whose Harlem-based Winley Records label quickly entered the race to find the next hit rap record. Like Sylvia Robinson and Bobby Robinson, Paul Winley was yet another R&B industry veteran whose kids were telling him about hip-hop and who fortunately possessed the skills to take that information and turn it into a lucrative business. Winley managed to sign several of the top hip-hop stars from the South Bronx, including the pioneering DJ Africa Bombata, whose glory days were still a few years in the future. But it was Sugar Hill Records itself who were the next to score a big R&B rap hit. The label's very next release after Rapper's Delight Was by an all-female trio of MCs who came from South Carolina, no less, called The Sequence, featuring a teenage Angie Stone under the name Angie B. Their song, Funk You Up, went top twenty on the R and B chart at the turn of the new day
0: the millionaire in space flying on go guy with the silver lake everybody calls me never rock because I'm a best out with the bump song
1: and by the end of 1979 the first rap record appeared on a major record label
0: gonna shake you gonna make gonna make it good gonna rock cho rock it through your neighborhood gonna read gonna sing it till it's
1: understood my rap about to happen like a knee you were slapping or told you the down Robert Ford was a 30-year-old reporter for Billboard magazine who dreamed of making some real money someday. He'd been told by a colleague that you could always make money by putting out a Christmas record because they sell every year and they never grow old. And so that's what he set out to do. In the summer of 1979, before Rapper's Delight was even released, Ford decided his Christmas song should be a rap song. And he and a fellow Billboard reporter named J.B. Moore wrote Christmas Rapping. They approached a couple of the top rappers on the scene, like DJ Hollywood and Eddie Chiba. But, like Sylvia Robinson, they were turned down by the big stars of hip-hop who didn't think rapping on a record would sell. Then, at a chance encounter with a young hip-hop party promoter in Queens named Russell Simmons, Ford mentioned his plan to make a rap Christmas record. Simmons' wheels immediately began to turn, and he managed to get Ford to come see a performance by his client, Curtis Blow. Ford and Moore took Curtis Blow into the studio in September and, like Sylvia Robinson, they decided to make the backing track sound like Good Times by Chic, which was still the most popular song in New York. By the time they were ready to shop the record to labels, Rapper's Delight was already on the radio and turning into a phenomenon. And yet, they were turned down by two dozen record labels who figured Rapper's Delight was a novelty and that there wasn't room in the marketplace for two of those rap records. Finally, an A&R man from Mercury Records' London office heard the track and convinced his American counterparts to sign it. As soon as it was released, the record was a smash. This was in part because the producers put an instrumental version of the song on the B-side of the 12-inch vinyl, which gave fans the opportunity to rap along at home and maybe even create their own raps. Christmas Rappin' was the first massive rap hit after Rapper's Delight, and it launched the careers of both Curtis Blow and Russell Simmons.
0: And the guy with the 88 started to participate in I appreciate it, sound so sweet. We were all in the mood, so we had a little food and a joke and a smoke.
1: And a little but in spite of these two massive hits and nearly 100 other rap releases in the fall of 1979, people still didn't take rap seriously. Billboard reported in February of 1980 that most people in the music industry viewed rap as, quote, a passing novelty that will go the way of all fads. It would be up to Sugar Hill Records to put that skepticism to rest by ramping up production and releasing a stream of top-notch rap records. But to do that, they needed top-notch talent. So in short order, they lured Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and the Funky Four plus one more away from Enjoy Records where those acts had disagreements with the label over royalty payments. Pretty soon, they even got Bobby Robinson's nephew, Spoonie G, to defect. These additions to the roster were necessary, since the Sugarhill Gang's next two singles were flops, and it looked like they might be one-hit wonders. Bringing Flash to Sugarhill proved to be the key move in building a dominant label. Between Grandmaster Flash's turntable skills and the Furious Five's rhymes, They'd always been considered the hip-hop act to bet on for commercial success. The group started paying dividends immediately upon their arrival at Sugar Hill with their first hit, Freedom. Like most of the early rap singles, Freedom was based on the rhythm track of a pre-existing record. In this case, the song Get Up and Dance by the group Freedom. Freedom. instead of having the track played just like the original record as they did on previous records flash got the sugar hill house band to approach it like flash would if he was spinning the record at a live hip-hop show (laughs) complete with call and response from the crowd and horn stabs that sounded like they would if Flash was back spinning the record and repeating the same horn stab over and over again. It was an unusual approach, getting a live band to imitate the sound of a DJ spinning recordings made by a live band, but it made for one very cool record. The house band at Sugarhill was actually the label's secret weapon. The core musicians in this band had been playing on hits for Sylvia's labels since the beginning of the 70s, and they were really tight. Guitarist Skip Alexander, bassist Doug Wimbush, and drummer Keith LeBlanc had actually cut a couple of instrumental albums for All Platinum prior to the hip hop era under the name Wood, Brass, and Steel. When Sugarhill launched, they were joined by percussionist Ed Fletcher, who went by the name Duke Bouttee, and engineer Jiggs Chase. Together, they were the last great label house band before labels turned to synthesizers. They were the hip-hop equivalent of Booker T and the MGs at Stax or Motown's Funk Brothers. And because Sugar Hill was the first label to focus on making rap records, these musicians were literally the first hip-hop musical ensemble. The first ones tasked with the challenge of making records made to sound just like a DJ playing other records. With the post-disco backlash against Black dance music in full sway on pop radio in the early 80s, Sugar Hill's output was foreign to most white audiences. For the Robinsons, catering exclusively to the Black community was more or less business as usual. But for the artists, it was more than just frustrating. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were actually driven from the stage under a barrage of plastic cups when they opened for The Clash at Bond's nightclub in New York in 1981. The rock audience just didn't know who they were and didn't know their music. If white listeners heard any rap music at all during this period, it was likely to be Blondie's Rapture, which came out at the end of 1980. Blondie's record may not have been authentic hip-hop, but it was a heartfelt tribute which had the good sense to name check Grandmaster Flash and popular Bronx MC Fab Five Freddy. Fab Five Freddy told me DJ
3: and I said my, my. Flash, is fast. flash is cool, flash ain't no and you don't stop.
1: And when Blondie's front woman, Deborah Harry, hosted Saturday Night Live in 1981, she brought along with her the Funky Four plus one more, who performed their incredible party single. That's The Joint. This appearance actually marked the first time a rap act had ever appeared on network television in the U.S.
0: Oh, the next group are among the best street rappers in the country. Please welcome my friends from the Bronx, the Funky
3: Four, plus one more.
1: That's The Joint represented yet another musical triumph by the Sugar Hill House Band. It featured DJ-style drum breaks played live, and they flipped the beat in a way that sounded like a DJ cutting from turntable yeah. to turntable. At the track's core is the recreation of yet another disco song, Rescue Me, by the group A Taste of Honey, only with a much tougher feel. And that live DJ party feel is what finally brought the Sugar Hill Gang back to the charts more than a year after Rapper's Delight. First, with the exuberant 8th Wonder, which used the musical track of the disco song Daisy Lady by the group 7th Wonder as its core.
5: Clap your hands, everybody. And everybody just clap your hands. I'm flying girls. Clap your hands. I'm well if you're feeling right and you think you're on that, let me know.
0: And then
1: the Sugar Hill Gang tackled one of the holiest grails in all of hip-hop when they recorded Apache built around what was Cool Herc's signature break, which came from the incredible bongo band's record Apache. which was itself a cover of a British surf guitar instrumental record. Once again, the sound of a party in the background gave the listener the feel of being at a hip hop performance, except with the live band imitating the sound of the DJ spinning and cutting records. But Apache was the last hit the Sugarhill gang ever had, and the group quickly slid into irrelevance as the label's attention turned to Grandmaster Flash, who was emerging as hip-hop's first superstar.
2: Coming up, Grandmaster Flash proves much more than a flash in the pan
0: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu
3: <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: The record that cemented Grandmaster Flash's reputation as the greatest hip-hop DJ of them all was The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that! It was a truly radical record. It was the first time anyone had tried to capture an actual DJ performance on a record, rather than having a band recreate the vibe. On this record. Flash exposed the whole world to the DJ's art of cutting and scratching, mixing back and forth between short passages from numerous records, creating a whole new kind of recorded music. Flash stitched together pieces like Cheeks Good Times, Queen's Another One Bites the Dust, whose bass was Cop from Good Times. The incredible bongo band's bongo rock.
0: Blondie's Rapture.
1: Yeah. And numerous hits from the Sugar Hill label, plus a spoken word snippet from a children's record. It took Flash seven hours of spinning records on three turntables to get the record right he insisted on doing it all in one continuous take and refused to punch in after a mistake or use any overdubs. That meant one mistake and he had to start all over again. The end result is a tour de force performance by a true master of his craft. What Flash accomplished on this record was to demonstrate that hip-hop was more than just people rhyming over disco beats. As writer David Toop noted at the time,
4: while other releases translated hip-hop, Adventures was as close as any record would come to being hip-hop.
1: But hip-hop was about to change in radical ways with the release, on an upstart label called Tommy Boy, of a record by one of the original pioneers of hip-hop who decided to embark in a whole new direction. Africa Bombada was a big fan of the German electronic music group Kraftwerk whose song Trans Europe Express had already changed the course of disco music a few years
0: earlier.
1: Bambada and his producer, Arthur Baker, decided to create an electro version of a hip-hop track, using Trans Europe Express as its core and then have the rappers in Bombata's crew improvise the rhymes, which, due to the song's rhythm, necessitated rapping off time, with the vocals being distorted in the mix. This record truly sounded like nothing that had ever come before, and it was an instant smash with hip-hop fans in New York. It came out of nowhere and was so unusual and original, it just dominated the scene. I remember DJing a 24-hour dance marathon at a New York City high school in the spring of 82 for a charity fundraiser, just as Planet Rock came out. I'd never heard of this record, but this one girl brought it to the dance and asked if I'd play it. Well, 24 hours is a long time to be playing records, so of course I gave it a spin. The kids on the dance floor went nuts the second it came on. But to be honest, it took me a little bit to catch on to it. The first time I played it, I was afraid that I'd blown out one of the speakers because I couldn't imagine the record was supposed to sound that way. But the girl assured me that, yep, this is what it's supposed to sound like. And I played that record every hour for the whole length of the dance marathon. And it filled the floor every single time. After about the third or fourth time I played it, I was in love with it. At the end of the 24 hours, I got on the mic and announced, I have time for one more song. What record do you want to hear? And everybody shouted in unison, Planet Rock! Planet Rock was a game changer. For one, it instantly made the live bands that played on hip-hop records obsolete. The first Sugar Hill artists to rise to the challenge laid down by Planet Rock were Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five. Melly Mel, who was the star rapper in The Furious Five, went into the studio with Duke Boutique and Jiggs Chase from The Sugar Hill House Band, And together, they created a record that would once and for all prove that rap was more than a novelty. The song they created, The Message, offered an intensely frank view of inner-city life, expressing economic helplessness, complete with references to abusive policing, Petty crime, unemployment, and prison violence. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get
0: far Cause a man with a tow truck repossessed my car Don't push me, cause
1: I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my In the song's final verse, Melly Mel recycled his verse from the Furious Five's first record, Super Rappin' on Enjoy Records, which tells the story of one man's slide into criminality, prison, and ultimately death.
0: A child is born with no state of mind. Blind to the ways of mankind. God is smiling on you, but
1: he's... The record ends with the sound of a policeman God, hassling and arresting the furious, furious Five on the street. Musically, the message was slower than other hip-hop records. It was dark. It was all menacing, icy electro keyboards and ominous beats. It was another one of those records that just sounded like nothing that came before. The immediate effect of the message was to change the focus of hip-hop from the DJ to the MC, and to give new prominence to the lyrics. Although credited to Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the song was all about Duke Boutique and Melly Mel's lyrical performance. And with synthesizers and drum machines beginning to replace live bands and turntables, the song's success made Duke Boutique and Melly Mel believe they didn't need to share the spotlight with Flash any longer. A few months later, when Message 2 came out, it was credited simply to Melly Mel and Duke Boutique. The next year, the anti-drug song White Lines was confusingly credited to Grandmaster and Melly Mel in an attempt to fool the public into thinking that Flash was somehow involved. But he wasn't. This record was pure Melly Mel, who by this point had become the most respected rapper in the game. Lyrically, White Lines took its cue from First Lady Nancy Reagan's Just Say No to Drugs initiative.
0: Say no to drugs and
1: say yes to life. It was a blunt warning against the perils of freebase cocaine use, but it was also an indictment of double standards in sentencing on the part of the judicial system. Musically, White Lines was pretty much a note-for-note recreation of the song Cavern by the new wave band Liquid Liquid. With Mel Mel rhyming over the track. But there was one other significant thing about White Lines. It had a sung chorus, a first for a Sugar Hill record. But something that would become extremely common in hip-hop over the next few years. Ooh, Vision, dreams of passion. And all the while I think of you. By the mid-80s, the growing irrelevance of live bands in hip-hop took away Sugar Hill's secret weapon, and the label started to lose its edge. Younger music executives with their ear to the streets started scooping up the best new talent, like Run DMC or Doug e. Fresh, while Sugar Hill mostly clung to its older stars. And those stars started to seem uncool when stacked up against the new breed. Competition from new indie rap labels became even more intense when the major labels jumped into the fray. Grandmaster Flash, upset once again about unpaid royalties, left Sugar Hill for Electro Records where his output had minimal impact. Sugar Hill Records began to seem out of touch. LL Cool J, for instance, submitted demos to the label nine times and never even received a reply. And in a famous gaffe, the label rejected a music video for White Lines made on spec by a young Spike Lee years before he directed his first feature film and starring an unknown Lawrence Fishburne. You can check that video out on YouTube. It's worth seeing. Sugar Hill slid into irrelevance just as hip-hop's potential for crossover success began to become realized. By 1986, Run-DMC were in the pop top ten with Walk This Way. And Sugar Hill, after entering a disastrous distribution deal with MCA Records, stopped releasing new product. The label's catalog was sold to Rhino Records in 1995. And the Rhino employee in charge of moving the master tapes out of Sugar Hill's Englewood headquarters remembers a car pulling up behind the tractor trailer holding the tapes, blocking the truck just as it was about to pull out of the driveway. Some rough characters got out of the car and went into the Sugar Hill offices to meet with the Robinsons. After completing their business, they left and allowed the truck with the tapes to pull out of the driveway. In the end, the mob got their peace. Speaking of trucks, Around that same time, I had the opportunity to make a record where we wanted to feature a member of the Sugar Hill Gang in order to evoke an early hip-hop party vibe. We tried to track down Big Bang Hank, who was driving a truck for the Englewood Sanitation Department. We called the department, and they told us they'd radio Hank on the truck and tell him to call us. Sure enough, a few minutes later, Hank pulled the truck over to the side of the road and called us from a payphone. He showed up at the studio and recorded a few lines in his very familiar style. He chatted with us for a while, sharing that he was happy to have had the experience of recording and traveling the world with the Sugar Hill Gang, even though he never saw most of the money he believed was due to him. Big Bang Hank died of cancer in 2014. And Grandmaster Kaz, the guy who actually wrote the words Hank rapped on Rapper's Delight, well, he never got the closure he'd hoped for. Hank and I never made peace. I'm the civil one. I'm the one who
4: never went and attacked, who never went over to Sugar Hill records and demanded anything. The one who held back my people that was like, yo, let's go, you know, I quelled all that. You know what I mean? I'm the one who took the high road, okay? But Hank never conceded anything. Whatever, if you see him in any interview that he's ever done about the subject, he, he kind of tries to brush it off like, well, you know, we kind of collaborated. We we collaborated on nothing. Everything that came out of his mouth was something that came out of my head and from my pen. There was no coll- collaboration. So Hank and I never got kumbaya or nothing like that. I saw Hank once at a Cretona Park jam. The Sugar Hill Gang was performing in, in Cretona Park. I still hadn't seen Hank in years, and he, you know, he's, he's fumbling with his words. He still can't talk to me. After all these years, he still can't, you know, speak to me. I just took the opportunity to take a photo with him because I had my photographer. To him, I was like, "Yo, Hank, let's get this pic, man." And and we took a picture, and that's the only picture that there is—the only photo of, of he and I together. So we never resolved anything. Hank never called and said, "Listen, man." I'm sorry about this and that. I didn't know this. And nothing. None of that. Nothing. As a footnote, I attended Hank's funeral. I drove out by myself to Hank's funeral. And uh the, you know, the, the, the pamphlet they make of, of you, you know what I mean, and they give out to people of uh, the memorial. Okay. There's pictures of Hank and pictures of Sugar Hill gang and different people. At the back of the of the memorial, the picture of me and him. The picture that I had gotten my photographer to take a few years ago was in the back of the memorial with my face blurred
1: out, okay? But even if Kaz didn't get recognition, royalties, or writing credit for Rapper's Delight, he still sees the song as a big part of his legacy.
4: Historically, I place it as the record that introduced the world to to hip-hop and rap music. To me personally, I've been conflicted, of course, but I feel like... uh, I'm lucky that I'm a part of something that has had that impact. So even though it didn't go the way it should have gone, I'm glad to be attached to it. You understand what I'm saying? I'm glad to be able to say that some of the first words that came out of a rapper's mouth came out of my mind.
1: The song also has a very personal meaning for the Sugar Hill gang's master G.
5: A Rapper's Delight is my passport. It's my my life tuition. It is my experience. It's my f- my future. It's my family's future. It is the thing that, no matter what, will be mine. I am the first of my kind, period, point blank. I'm the first rap star. I am the first re- rap recording artist. I am the first platinum-selling rap recording artist. And because of that song, it's mine, and nobody can take it away from me.
1: Wonder Mike believes the record speaks for itself.
6: In terms of hip-hop, a fern, granite, number one. We ended up with what I think and most of the world thinks is the number one hip-hop record in terms of historical significance. Maybe not in terms of artistic content, but historical, yeah, significance, number one, baby. The gigantic, massive juggernaut of a hit that would usher in a new genre of music that had not existed before.
1: Sylvia Robinson, the mastermind behind Rapper's Delight and the success of Sugar Hill Records, also deserves a more significant place in music history. Here's Master G.
5: She is one of the most creative, the most talented, the most insightful producers, recording artists, singers, that I've ever seen. you got to think about it. Rapper's Delight. 8th Wonder, Apache, Freedom, Message, White Lines. Those are all songs that she produced. She was amazing. But when it came to creating, she doesn't get the credit that she deserves. Barry Gordy and Motown, look at where he's at. Look at his name. Sylvia did the same thing Barry Gordy did. She did the same thing. She picked the artist. She helped write the songs. She helped produce the songs. She had the label. I mean, so why doesn't she get... The same thing, because the only difference is she was a woman.
1: Sylvia Robinson passed away at the age of 76 in 2011, but her legacy definitely lives on. In fact, it's assumed that Sylvia was the inspiration for Taraji P. Henson's character Cookie Lion on the hit TV series Empire.
3: The names Cookie ask about me.
1: And that wraps up our episode on the record that introduced hip-hop to the world. On our next episode of Speed of Sound, we'll look at the dance that kicked off the 1960s in more ways than one, and in the process ignited a social revolution as we tell the incredible story of The Twist. If you want to take a deeper dive into the artists and songs you just heard, check out our curated playlist at the Speed of Sound page on the iHeart app. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. I'm Steve Greenberg. Until next time, keep listening for music that moves you.
3: Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen
2: to your favorite shows.
1: or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com.
2: Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
5: Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture.